You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Right, um, you're very welcome today, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce John Porter, who I have supervised for PhD over the last four years. Uh, and he's going to talk to us today on an aspect of that PhD. And the PhD is, is entitled Consuming Behaviours, Ireland, 1922-1960. I think the paper today is, is based on an article he's just published in uh, historical studies, which I encourage you all to go and read on this in the latest edition, next to the latest edition. Uh, and he's going to talk to us today on, on researching based on that, uh, on the Public Dance Halls Act 1935 for the examination. Thanks, Anne. Uh, thanks for the introduction, and more especially thanks for all your help in preparing the article and also all the thesis supervision. Uh, it's been four and a half years, I think, we've had, so you're probably ready to be uh, done with me now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, as Anne said, this, this paper today will be a condensed version of the article in Irish Historical Studies which is in turn a condensed version of uh, my um, chapter in my thesis. And as Anne said, it's titled Consuming Behaviours Ireland 1922 to 1960. And without going into too much detail, the thesis is an effort to kind of reconsider a certain aspect of everyday life in 20th century Ireland before 1960. Um, and Relatively little research has been conducted into everyday life in this period, although it's, in, it's been increasing recently. Um, and there are notable exceptions, like the work of Katrina Clear or Lindsay Erner Byrne. Um, but still, several dominant narratives it heavily influenced the way that we interpret the period before 1960 especially uh, economic backwardness, uh, social control by the Catholic Church and the state, and an almost willful isolation from international cultural developments. Um, and so this is where dance halls comes in. Uh, in histor historiography on dance halls uh, has really emphasized social control by the Catholic Church and the state. And to summarize this briefly, control over dancing has been understood as part of the expanding influence the Catholic Church was able to exert over Irish society, both at a practical level of observance and an ideological level at which notions of morality were shaped. Uh, the Irish state in various forms has been seen as an ally of this effort to promote a kind of moral national culture. And this interpretation of dance halls in 1930s Ireland has been advanced in works by Helen Brennan, uh, Barbara O'Connor, James Smith, and Valerie Austin, and has also been supported by local studies such as uh, Catherine Foley's work on North Kerry. Um, the Public Dance Halls Act 1935 has been presented as the culmination of efforts by the Catholic Church and the state to control dancing. Brennan has suggested that the 1935 Act offered the Church a virtual monopoly over dance halls in Ireland. Uh, Garod O'Halveron likewise has argued that the, PD, the Public Dance Halls Act facilitated a move from communal dances held in farmhouses to dance halls held in to dances held in parochial halls under clerical supervision. 
this narrative on dance halls has influenced popular understandings as well. Uh, and I was struck last week just reading an article uh, in the journal online um, about licensing laws in Ireland uh, and it, the, the author stated very confidently, quote, our hesitancy to embrace nighttime culture and public dancing is deeply rooted and seems to emanate from a familiar place. In the 1930s, the Catholic Church ordered de Valera's government to outlaw dancing and a moral carry-on at house parties, making sure that they, the priests, were the only organizers of dances. And this is an exaggerated version of the general narrative that is seen in a number of works. But it's not only a narrative that has resonance in popular understandings, it's also influencing much broader works. So in, for example, uh, a study by uh, a number of Pyle and, sorry, I've just Pyle et al, but it should, the other authors deserve credit as well. But in a broad study of youth at policy in 20th century Ireland, it claimed that the Public Dance Halls Act was part of a broader trend in which young people's leisure time was to be monitored in a certain kind of Catholic public sphere. So you can kind of see the ways in which it has a resonance in popular understandings, but also is kind of shaping very significant scholarly work on uh, sociology and history writing in Ireland. Um, uh, this concept of a Catholic public sphere has found numerous expressions. Uh, Tom Inglis has claimed that Irish Catholics experience, quote, a systematic process of socialization. Um, the idea of a containment culture has also been posited to describe life in Ireland. Um, and the, the Public Dance Halls Act can be located within a series of laws and official reports, uh, including, for example, the Censorship of Film Act 1923, Censorship of Publications 1929, the report of the Carrigan Committee, as this legislative effort to kind of promote uh, or contain immoral behavior in Ireland. Uh, Deward Ferrer has notably commented that Irish historiography has often been more concerned with uh, what quote, people were supposedly not permitted to do as opposed to what they actually did. And this is certainly true of much of the scholarship on film and literature in Ireland. Uh, and it's also very evident in a lot of the writing on dance halls as well. Now, there are exceptions that should be noted in regard to dance halls. Uh, separate studies by David Fowler and James Donnelly highlighted the limits of clerical influence. Donnelly noted in relation to Galway that young dancers often paid scant attention to the moral pronouncements of Bishop Michael Brown on commercial dance halls. And Fowler, in a wide-ranging study of youth culture in Britain that discussed dance halls in Ireland specifically, concluded that youth seem to have been a lot freer in the south of Ireland during the 1920s and 1930s, contrasting it to Northern Ireland. Um, the Public Dance Halls Act, according to Donnelly and Fowler, was far from draconian, and Donnelly has argued that it was even interpreted as a failure by many clerical opponents. And these works provided valuable critiques of the narrative on dancing and cultural practices noted above. Um, but they haven't had the opportunity to go into the depth on the subject as may be warranted. There are also two recent theses on the on this topic of dance halls. Um, 
Paula Valle's study of the Monaghan Armagh border region and Sean Shanaher's study of the Elfin area of Roscommon, which asked pertinent questions of the accepted narrative. Uh, Valle, for example, did not find a, a clerical monopoly on dancing, but rather showed that the vast majority of dance halls were non-parochial. And Shanaher demonstrated that modern dances and foreign music, if anything, increased in popularity following the Public Dance Halls Act. So, it's a very long spiel of uh, information at the start, but uh, what this paper aims to do is develop some of the arguments that have been made by recent scholarship. First, it will argue that control commonly attributed to the Catholic Church has been overemphasized. It will query whether dancing moved predominantly to, into parochial halls after 1935, and it will also ask whether efforts to regulate the morality of dancers was effective. Secondly, the people will emphasize two factors that have not received sufficient attention to this point. Health and safety considerations played a considerable part in shaping dancing regulations from 1935 onwards. The role of local communities appears to have been significant in shaping dance hall regulations, but this role has neither received specific attention. The paper will draw on the recent scholarship mentioned above, but it will also utilize primary source material that has been overlooked. In particular, it will look at material held in Department of Justice records. Um, in September 1938, the Department of Justice requested Garda superintendents in all districts to collect and report on licenses granted in that year, and more generally to comment, comment on the effect of the Public Dance Halls Act that had been passed three years previously. At the same time, the department also collected information on the conditions stipulated in licenses by district justices within their court areas. And this information really does provide a treasure trove of information uh, that, that I was very, very lucky to just stumble upon in the National Archives. So there was no grand plan to this uh, um, particular piece of research. It just happened uh, that this material really threw up a lot of questions that I then looked at. Um, now, there are certain problems with the material. Uh, the Garda reports often provide opinions rather than factual evidence. Um, but the real benefit is that the breadth of information they provide across the entirety of the state, for example, the Garda reports contain responses from 114 superintendents, each with responsibility for a separate dist district. Um, so these sources allow us to posit national trends as well as to distinguish for regional peculiarities, which was not really being possible in many of the other local studies by Donnelly, Valale, Shanaher. Um, so, one moment. <laughs> The paper is limited as well in the fact that it is really only looking at the period from 1935 to 1938. These are this the period considered by the Garda reports, but it will also draw a little on um, subsequent primary source material, such as Flann O'Brien's well-known 1941 article on dance halls and the bell. Dance halls are offered here really as a case study that might suggest new insights and questions for research on 20th century Irish social history. Dancing along with other cultural and social practices have rightly been understood as limited and circumscribed by the influence of the Catholic Church. 
but the intense and sometimes myopic focus on the power of the church and on Catholic moral teaching has, I think, obscured other factors that also deserve consideration. And new source materials such as that discussed in this paper offers a fresh means of approaching the question of church and state control over cultural practices. So, that's finally the introduction over. Uh, the public dance halls bill was introduced by the Fianna Fáil administration in June 1934 and passed into law in February 1935, receiving the support of both Fine Gael and Labour. Smith claimed that following the passage of the Public Dance Halls Act, it became, quote, practically impossible to hold dances without the sanction of the trinity of clergy, police, and the judiciary, close quote. But there is little evidence for this in the act itself. The legislation gave authority to local district justices to grant or deny licenses and to apply restrictions to them at licensing sessions throughout the country. So this is the legislation itself. But then the obvious question is, how was this legislation interpreted and implemented by the district justices? Justice Gleason in Clare was recorded as saying that, quote, in any parish in which a license was granted for a parochial hall under the supervision of the clergy, he would not grant a license for any other building in the same parish, close quote. The granting of licenses to church-run halls has been viewed as the overwhelming trend adopted by district justices following the 1935 legislation. O'Halveron, for example, who's discussing Clare specifically, the area of Justice Gleason discussed above, um, has argued that the public dance halls like marked a transition uh, in the location of dancing from the familial to the parochial domain. While it is evident nationally that there was a move away from the farm or barn dance in the 1930s, it is not clear that across the country dances moved only into parochial halls. The 1930s and after did witness a growth in parochial hall building. Um, Munitir uh, dedicated themselves to a program of parochial hall construction in the late 1930s, um, with Stephen Reen claiming that in the muddled mind of the public, they are often mistaken for a hall building association. Some scholars have assumed that parochial halls replaced commercial ones, but there's little. Um, sorry, but there is evidence that the number of commercial halls may also have expanded. Dance licenses, unfortunately, do not distinguish between parochial and commercial halls. Valle has demonstrated, however, that along the Monaghan Armagh border, there is little evidence that parochial halls predominated following the Public Dance Halls Act. Out of a total of 46 halls near the border, 34 were described in the study as secular, three as unknown, and only nine listed as parochial halls. In the Garda Circular reports mentioned previously, uh, we find the incomplete but significant incomplete but significant commentary on the ratio of parochial to commercial dance halls. Indeed, in these these reports may be the only reliable source of information on the national picture. Superintendent suggested that the move towards parochial dance halls was not universal across Ireland. In Kildare District, Superintendent Flynn claimed the parochial halls were, quote, rapidly falling out of the picture from the point of view of dancing, the commercial dance hall being substituted. In Mayo, commercial dance halls certainly predominated over parochial run halls. G 
Chief Superintendent O'Halloran of Mayo Region numbered the country's dance halls at night, the, the county's dance halls at 95, 80 of which he described as commercial premises and 15 as parochial run halls. Indeed, the surfeit of commercial halls in Mayo was noted as a problem by all superintendents in their reports. Uh, P. Hedden of Castle Bar District claimed, for example, that, quote, it was wrong to do away with the country house stances and give commercial halls the monopoly, close quote. Some areas, such as part of Wexford and Carlow, appear to have had a preponderance of parochial halls. Enniscorthy and Gorey districts reported, for example, that all halls within the two districts were parochial run. In other regions, such as Galway, there appears to have been relative parity in the number of commercial and parochial halls. In Balmaslow district, six of ten halls, and in Athenry, four of seven halls were described as parochial. In general, though, it was rare for a district not to have had at least one commercial dance hall, even if the parochial halls were predominant in the area. So in Boyle, Roscommon, for example, seven out of eight halls were described as parochial, but there was one commercial hall. It's not always clear exactly who is the owner of such halls, of such commercial halls. The Garda circulars frequently refer to halls being owned by local publicans, often in close proximity to their public houses, as you might imagine. Um, in rural areas, halls may frequently have been owned by just a local farmer who saw the opportunity to profit from a disused barn or shed. Uh, the division between parochial and commercial halls, moreover, does not capture the full complexity of the issue. In addition to such premises, very many halls were operated by associational clubs, including political parties, trade unions, sporting clubs, and various other examples. In many areas, halls, in many areas, such halls seem to have been predominant. The majority of clubs in Valley's study were neither strictly commercial nor parochial run by associations. Associational halls, of course, were not limited to the border area, as in uh, Valet's study, but common across the country. In Blarney District, two halls were run by local GAA clubs, two by Fianna Fáil party branches, one by a Harrier club, with only one parochial and one commercial hall in the area. Well, we can definitively state that in the 1930s, familial and communal dances declined. We cannot say that dancing moved solely under parochial control. It seemed reasonable to assume that dances were held in the structures available in the local area, whether they were parochial, associational, or commercial. Um, and I, I haven't uh, discussed it here, but um, I also, for my the thesis chapter, had a study of advertisements of dances in the year 1938, and what this threw up was that they dances were held in parochial halls, commercial halls, in libraries, in schools, in whatever uh, structure was available. And license halls were not the only location either. Um, licenses could be granted for dance platforms, which remained popular to the 1940s. In some areas, communities continued to hold unlicensed dances in barns or houses. Um, to <clears throat> Let's move on. Uh, uh, as well as this question of ownership, though, we must also consider what type of supervision was normal for parochial, commercial, or associational halls. 
the guard reports revealed that occasionally some form of parochial supervision was exercised even over halls that were described as commercial or associational. Indeed, some superintendents suggested that such supervision was encouraged by the owners of commercial halls in an effort to cultivate an image of respectability. For dance hall owners, it made good business sense that their hall was seen to be approved of by the local priest. Or it certainly made sense for the purposes of the parents. It might not have been so attractive for the children actually going to the halls. But it, it is not clear that this practice was generally adopted across the country. And indeed, some superintendents made it clear that no such parochial supervision was established in their district. It's very difficult to provide a rounded assessment of the supervisory power of the clergy because of a lack of available source material, but also because of regional and even parish variation. Foley has argued that in North Kerry, priests had extensive powers of supervision and on occasion literally chased dancers from halls. Valet's study of Monhan Armagh, though, does not support this thesis, with one interview claiming that the influence over the church of the church over dancing was, quote, largely overhyped nonsense. Even in parochial halls, supervision could often be lax. Many superintendents noted that profit was often an overriding concern for both parochial and commercial halls. Superintendent Hebe of Bancrana District claimed that parochial committees and priests could often lapse in their supervisory role for, quote, the purpose of raising funds for church restoration, end quote. As Hebe's comment suggests, frequent parochial committees, frequently parochial committees supervise dance halls rather than priests themselves, and many superintendents make it clear that supervision by parochial committees was more common. It was not always the clergy who supervised dance halls, but also members of the local community. The question of local community involvement in dance halls will be addressed later in the paper. For now, it suffices to note that supervision was not always or even often exercised by the clergy. Additionally, the level of supervision, it appears, varied depending on the region or the parish concern. And we cannot draw any uniform conclusions in relation to the level of supervision or the number of parochial versus commercial dance halls in the local. The picture is complicated and it certainly cannot be reduced to any uniform national trend that is generally applicable. In addition to the ownership and supervision of dance halls, it's important to consider how dancers actually behaved. Uh, immorality was frequently decried from pulpits and by newspapers, but what effect did such denunciations have on the behavior of dancers? Immorality was often argued by moral campaigners was promoted by foreign jazz music and dancing. In 1929, for example, the Gaelic, the GAA complemented its ban on foreign sports with a ban on foreign dances. Theoretically, at least no GAA club could organize any entertainment where foreign dancing was permitted. District justices were often happy to support such moves against imported immorality by stipulating in licenses that a certain number of dances be Irish. Flann O'Brien satirized this tendency in his paper, in his article on dance halls, published in the Bell in 1941. Quote, some district justices have a habit of taking leave of their senses at the annual licensing sessions. They want Irish dancing and plenty of it. They believe that Satan, with all his guile, is baffled by a forehand reel and cannot make head nor tail of the rakes of Mallow. <laughs> <laughs> 
many district justices sought to encourage Irish dancing in their areas, but this did little to curtail the popularity of foreign dances and jazz music. Dancers sought out the new and contemporary forms. The actual ratio of Irish to non-Irish dances was estimated by O'Brien to have been roughly 1 to 20, because he claimed Irish dances were almost incompatible with contemporary demands. Quote, the foxtrot and the fairy reel are mutually repugnant and will not easily dwell under the same roof. Superintendent Jay Kelleher of Tralee District claimed that dance hall attendance in his locality paid no attention to the Irish non-Irish question. Kelleher suggested that the number of dancers was directly relatable to the quality of the band playing. It was, uh, quote, a question of getting the best value for money. Keeleys were generally seen as unfashionable. Uh, Julia, Julia Griffin, who I was interviewed for a, a separate uh, oral history project who was living in Athlone in the 1930s remembered that her preference for Irish dances put her firmly in the minority. Quote, all the rest of the boys and my sister, they preferred what, they, what was called the modern dance, the waltzes and the quick step. It is also worth noting that while some district justices sought to promote Irish dances, many showed little concern as to the type of dance being performed. In 1935, for example, when applying for a dance hall license, the Gaelic, the, I've always written Gaelic Athletic Association as GA, keep it, in Waterford, claimed that they would hold only old-fashioned waltzes and keelys. The district justice who granted the license informed the association that they could, quote, dance whatever dances they wished. Even some of the most demanding licenses, for example, those set by Justice Ford in Galway, allowed half or more dances to be non-Irish. Allied to these fears over foreign dancing were fears regarding the consumption of alcohol, which of course can also lead to immorality. Uh, many district justices applied stipulations banning the seal of alcohol in dance halls. A number of Garda superintendents, though, noted the futility of such bans. Superintendent Murray of Gorey District and Superintendent Glynn of Sligo both noted the tendency for consumers to leave the dance hall in order to purchase alcohol in a nearby pub. There is no overall consensus in relation to the alcohol prohibitions in the Garda reports, as some superintendents suggest that the regulations had generally reduced the level of consumption. Many, however, took the opposite view, suggesting that the 1935 Act encouraged increased alcohol consumption. W.P. Quinn, who was Chief Superintendent of Tipperary District, noted, quote, the absence of a bar to sell, intoxicate, to sell intoxicating liquor has caused persons who incline to drink to bring intoxicants with them, and it has been suggested that this type of conduct leads to more abuses than where intoxicants were openly sold in a bar at the dance. Chief Superintendent McCarter of Longford and Westmeath District claimed that the buying of alcohol actually created greater problems. Quote, the signs of intoxication are less notable at dances where intoxicating liquor is allowed for sale. McCarter stated that dancers perform more likely to become intoxicated when they are forced to leave the hall and quickly ingest alcohol in a nearby pub. Flann O'Brien claimed that, quote, nearly every male who goes to the dances like drink, likes drink and takes plenty of it commenting with admiration on the craft of going out for 20 separate drinks to a pub 400 yards away without ever appearing to leave the hall. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that the, 
the superintendent also mentioned the uh, comment on the gendered nature of consumption of alcohol. Um, so E.A. Reynolds, who's chief superintendent of Bray District, noted that while previously women would not purchase alcohol at a bar owing to the perceived shame of drinking in public, the fact that the consumption was secretive meant that they felt much freer to have a drink. So Reynolds claimed that, quote, women will not leave the dance hall for the purpose of obtaining drink in convenient public houses, but they would take a drink from men in the hall. Superintendent McCarter referenced above noted that as long as alcohol consumption was secretive, there was little check on the amount women were consuming. Quote, females who desire a drink as a rule will not stay too long at a dance hall bar, he stated, but they would happily accept alcohol from other sources. From the reports of the superintendents involved in policing the dance halls, we therefore have considerable evidence that consumption of alcohol was not reduced by the 1935 Act. Indeed, in a number of locales, the prohibitions on alcohol appear to have increased consumption. Regulations introduced by district justices to prevent moral lapses, therefore, appear not to have been as rigorously enforced as previously believed. Catholic campaigners, along with the Irish state, were not always able to enforce their vision of morality. It should not be assumed, however, the dance halls were loci of immorality either, as many campaigners were claiming. The Garda circulars were generally in agreement on this issue. The conclusion appended to the circulars stated, quote, the tendency to blame public dancing as a primary cause of the alleged lowering of the standard of public morality is not well-founded and is not borne out by the facts as known to officers. While many superintendents highlighted cases of sexual crimes or immoral acts that had occurred in their area, a few could relate them to dance halls and even then very tenuously. Even superintendents who were convinced that there had been, quote, a degradation of morals generally during the past 20 years, as was claimed by the chief superintendent of Wexford Region, claimed, um, would not claim that dance halls were responsible. The chief superintendent of Kerry Region noted that officers in the area had, quote, found couples to admit that on their way home from dance halls, they adjourned to hay barns where misconduct occurred. He went on to state, however, we have got similar admissions from young men and women who were on their way home from a mission. <laughs> What I've presented so far, I hope, uh, provides some evidence to suggest that the current historical interpretation of dancing and the Public Dance Halls Act in 1930s Ireland requires considerable nuancing. It's not the case that dancing moved exclusively into the parochial domain following the passage of the Public Dance Halls Act. Indeed, it appears that in many parts of the country, there was a spread of commercial dance halls. Neither can it be claimed that the moral vision of anti-dance hall campaigners was fulfilled as foreign dancing maintained its position and expanded in popularity, and there's also evidence to suggest that alcohol consumption was not reduced. While clerical control over dancing at practical moral levels has been overemphasized in Irish historiography, other aspects of the history of public dancing have not received significant attention. The paper will now discuss the importance of health and safety concerns in understanding dance hall regulations, and will then turn to the role of local communities in shaping regulations on dancing. 
So PJ Rutledge, the Minister for Justice, when introducing the second reading of the public dance halls bill to the Shannon, stated, quote, many dance halls are considered by the authorities to be quite unsuitable for the purpose, and it is deemed necessary that power should be given to the Garda Shikana to supervise and have some control over them. And here Rutledge was referring to the actual physical layout and the structure of dance halls. In the years preceding the introduction of the Act of 1934 and thereafter, very many dance halls across Ireland caught fire and were often completely destroyed. To provide just a few examples, a dance hall near Canturk in Cork was destroyed by a fire in June 1932. In April 1933, a hall in, in Aberdornie in Kerry was likewise completely gutted, as was another hall in Ballycotton, Cork in December of that year. And Irish society was very aware of the potential effect of a fire on such structures after the Drumcolher fire in 1926, in which 48 people died following a blaze in a temporary cinema. The connection between fire and dance halls was clearly established in the public mind, and there was public concern about the poor condition of many dance halls, especially in rural areas. Flann O'Brien described a typical rural hall in his article, quote, Most of the halls I have seen are old schoolhouses or new timber structures with a tin roof. Light is provided by large paraffin lamps suspended from the roof, less frequently by incandescent paraffin installations on the walls. Val Lake claimed that in many halls in the Monaghan Armagh area, paraffin oil was spread on the floor to make it slippery and therefore better for dancing. Fire damage was not confined to such evidently ill-suited facilities, however, a hall in Monkstown described by the Irish press as, quote, a comparatively modern place caught fire in October 1934 and was only saved from destruction by the proximity of the Dunleary Fire Service. In part, the Public Dance Halls Act aimed to improve safety features and overall facilities for dancers attending such halls. Of the seven matters that district justices were asked to pay consideration to when they granted a license, five related to the suitability and safety of the hall, that of the surrounding area, and also the present dancing facilities in that area. So the physical health and safety of the dancer was considered at least as important, if not more important, than their moral or spiritual safety. Many district justices believe that the need to assess the suitability of the physical location and layout of the hall were paramount considerations when deciding on licenses. District Justice Little, for example, demanded that prior to the granting of a license he be satisfied as to, quote, floor space, height and ventilation, and that sanitary office and cloakrooms be provided, as well as suitable firefighting appliances. Such demands from district justices seem to have been quite common. If licenses were to be granted to premises lacking adequate facilities and safeguards, many justices required that alterations would be made for the license to be renewed at the following session. Superintendent Murray of Gorey District reported that one hall in Ballymoney had closed the previous year as it had failed to make adequate alterations to improve its physical structure. Murray also recorded that the guardie in his district intended to oppose the renewal of a license for Spencer's Hall in the upcoming session for similar reasons. According to Garda reports filed before 1938, much police work involved assessing the structural safety of the building in which dances was held, rather than observing the moral or immoral behaviour of dancers attending. 
Many reports provided details uh, outlining uh, hall structure and facilities. When asked to offer his opinion on dance halls in Waterford City, Officer P. Kilroy stated that six out of seven halls were unsuitable from the viewpoint of consumer safety and facilities. Kilroy noted that in the Royal Dance Hall, quote, there was only one exit in the building. He likewise objected to the Redmond Hall because of a lack of exits and the absence of a gentleman's toilet facility. <coughs> for similar reasons, he opposed licenses for four hall, further halls in Waterford City, stating that, quote, in two cases, the dance halls are located over garages in which are stored petrol and other combustibles. In the Garda Circular replies, many superintendents emphasized the importance of the regulations. Superintendent O'Neill of Gore District recommended that, quote, no hall or place be licensed until the requirements of the Public Health Acts are first complied with. O'Neill objected to Gardy's assessment of safety standards, as he noted quite accurately that they lacked the requisite qualifications to do so. Instead, he suggested that, quote, a qualified engineer and local sanitary authority be asked to inspect each hall prior to the granting of a license. Chief Superintendent Doyle likewise stated that only experts should be allowed to decide on issues such as structural soundness. Such comments suggest that the Guardian took the regulations regarding the safety of consumers seriously, even if um, they themselves felt inadequate when judging the facilities. The introduction of the Act did not rectify the standards of dance halls across Ireland overnight. Superintendent Heron of Newport District highlighted one of the problems limiting the potential efficacy of the Act. Quote, in country halls, a lower standard of facility must be accepted, noting, uh, he claimed, noting how difficult it was to insist on safety standards when the facilities were inadequate. Superintendent Murphy of Mohill District expressed concern that a number of hill halls in his area were corrugated iron structures, but doubted that better facilities could be made available. In remote rural areas, demanding particular safety features was often not feasible. Whilst this was the case, it should be evident that safety provisions were a significant aspect of the Public Dance Halls Act, and there was an effort through the regulations imposed by district justices to improve the safety of consumers. <clears throat> dance halls could also be viewed as dangerous places for reasons apart from poor fire safety. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail on this now, but there is evidence uh, of uh, dance halls and dance platforms being used as sites of conflict between Fianna Fáil and League of Youth members in the early 1930s, especially in 1934. And uh, there's also some evidence of dance halls being connected to um, in Dublin to what are described as animal gangs. Um, just, I don't know if you've come across them before, but I, not necessarily criminal gangs, but just youths that maybe are, you don't want to associate with. Um, <laughs> um, we can suggest that in the wider public consciousness, dance halls were associated with hazards either in the form of fire or physical violence. The Public Dance Halls Act sought to address some of the physical safety problems associated with halls, and judges and guard officers often devoted most attention to the structure and safety features. 
This does not mean that the state took no interest in what might be described as the moral health of dancers. The following section will demonstrate that limiting moral lapses was a concern for district justices and Garda superintendents. It will suggest, however, that attention should be directed as much towards local communities and their fears as it should focus on Catholic Church control. Many district justices applied restrictions on dance licenses to limit how far someone could travel to attend a dance hall. These restrictions ranged from a two mile to a 10 mile radius and were most common in Western counties, especially in Mayo, Limerick, Clare and Kerry. Restrictions on how far someone could travel to attend a dance hall though were also applied in other parts of the country, including in Waterford, Cavan, Monaghan and Kildare. Travel restrictions were not enforced in all areas or by all district justices, it should be noted. Justice McCann in the Galway, in Galway, for example, refused to apply such restrictions, claiming they were, quote, against the liberty of the subject. Limits were also often placed on, quote, sitting out, referring to dance hall attendees leaving the hall to sit outside the premises, often in cars. And a previous law in 1932 actually gave the Guardian the powers to inspect activity inside motor vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> Travel restrictions and regulations against sitting out can seem somewhat baffling, um, especially in rural areas where traveling distances of five or more miles would be fairly commonplace. Comments made by district justices may help to explain why such restrictions were put in place. District Justice Cahill, when refusing the license for a dance hall at Air Court in 1936, cited as justification the fact that, quote, some of the people attending there were undesirable characters who came from outside parishes. As this suggests, not only were travel restrictions applied, but occasionally licenses were not granted to stop undesirables traveling into rural areas. Justice Johnson, in the same year at a licensing session uh, in Kerry, explained his decision to impose a three-mile distance restriction. Quote, because buckos in motor cars from Tralee were frequenting these dance halls. Those traveling to the dances were presented as undesirable elements. The Garda circulars, circulars provide significant commentary on the necessity of introducing such restrictions. Superintendent Flynn of Kildare District made the link explicit when he stated, quote, the district justice imposed an area limit to prevent undesirables from outside areas who were chiefly the cause of trouble from being admitted. The Garda circulars, as was noted above, generally suggest little evidence for the supposed connection between sexual offences and dance halls. This trend changes, however, when an undesirable outside figure is discussed. Superintendent O'Reilly of Bray District noted that in his area there had been no problems whatsoever except for a hall in Newton Mount Kennedy run by one John Egan who, quote, ran cheap dances for busloads of people from the poorer quarters of Dublin City. The only case of immorality highlighted in his report occurred at this hall. He claimed to have received, quote, complaints from local people of persons fornicating in the fields in the vicinity. Many superintendents highlighted particular problem dance halls catering for outsiders. So one particular example is the Polk Amusement Hall in Killineen. Uh, in this case, uh, 
the superintendent commented that people have come from Waterford City and Carrick on Sewer to dance on the hall. And he claimed rumours had circulated that as many as 10 girls were seduced by alleged outsiders. The regulations against City Night were an important corollary to the travel restrictions, both aimed to protect the local community from undesirable outsiders. While the level of car ownership in Ireland was relatively low in the mid-1930s, comparative to other European countries, dancers in, well, the superintendent suggested dancers rent cars and it's possible that cars were stolen or liberated for the purposes of uh, going to dances. Um, Chief Superintendent Fahi noted, quote, it is a common practice for young people living in towns to hire cars and travel long distances to dances held in remote areas. And it is not unusual for them to visit more than one rural dance in one night. The superintendent of Letterkenny District suggested that the willingness to travel resulted from the availability of motor transport, as well as a changed mindset among young people. While in the past travelling to a dance hall may have involved a day's journey and corresponding loss in income, he claimed, quote, today attendance at such a dance is looked upon as a matter of course. Dancers, of course, cannot, could have also travelled to halls by bicycle. Uh, oral history interviews claimed that cycling 15 to 20 miles to a dance hall or cinema was commonplace. The fear of outside individuals or groups traveling long distances may have been exaggerated, but it does not appear to have been wholly fictitious. The conclusion appended to the Garda circulars claimed that outsiders were, quote, less sensitive to public opinion as to their conduct in the areas in which they are not known, and in the absence of such a restraining influence, excesses are likely to occur. The parents of local dancers had the most fear from such outsiders. Their daughters could have been tainted by an unwanted association, especially if they were to have become pregnant as a result of an encounter. It is reasonable to assert that the impetus for travel restrictions came from local communities. District justices, when applying restrictions, would reference the particular difficulties that were reported by residents near the dance halls, such as, for example, the quote, the previous quote about buckos coming from Tralee. These restrictions, of course, also had to be enforced by the local community itself because guard officers could not monitor all rural dance halls. Of course, local clergy could have been involved in policing these travel restrictions, but it seems more likely that community groups were involved in this process. As was noted, uh, parochial committees uh, more commonly took responsibility for supervision than the local priests. It is very doubtful that travel restrictions were applied to the letter of the law. How could someone prove exactly how far they had traveled to attend a dance hall? You've gone one kilometer or 100 uh, meters over the limit, so therefore you're not allowed admittance into the hall. The distance traveled to attend the dance could be exaggerated or reduced depending on the perceived threat posed by the person seeking admittance. There's an element of speculation here, of course, but it seems more appropriate to view these travel restrictions as a mechanism for local communities to control dance halls rather than strictly enforce legal stipulations. To conclude then, the Public Dance Halls Act did more than simply facilitate indirect clerical control over the leisure time of young people in Ireland. 
As the paper has shown, dancing was not confined to parochial halls, and neither was the nation's youth forced into Keeley dances, as has often been claimed. Instead, it appears that the popularity of modern imported forms of music and dance was increasing in the 1930s, as perhaps was the consumption of alcohol amongst dancers. It is certainly possible that local priests in certain areas were enforcing strict supervisory control over dancing, but there is no evidence that this extended to a national or even regional level. It is equally possible, as the paper has suggested, that local communities assumed a supervisory role and enforced dancing restrictions for the purpose of safeguarding their own areas. The influence of local communities has been overlooked previously, however, as have the importance of health and safety regulations following the Public Dance Halls Act. The Act did not immediately improve the structural quality of dance halls, but it represented an effort by the state to assume authority and responsibility for the safety of its citizens. The lacunae in historiography on dance halls in early 20th century Ireland, which have been highlighted, I think are emblematic of broader gaps within Irish historiography. There has been a tendency to stress the uniqueness of the Irish experience, especially in relation to the influence of the Catholic Church. In regard to cinema and literature, historians have focused on censorship and control, using official documents and the writings of moral campaigners. And this top-down approach has led almost naturally to an emphasis on the distinctiveness and harshness of the Irish experience. Yet in other European nations, we can witness similar fears over new cultural forms and similar efforts to control them. Britain was often blamed as the exporter of foreign and degenerate music in Ireland. Even in supposedly liberal Britain, though, we can highlight similar fears over jazz music and dancing and efforts by the government to crack down on these new cultural forms, such as that attempted by William Johnson Hicks in the 1920s. Structures to regulate morality were common to both Catholic and Protestant churches and on both sides of the border, as has been highlighted by Leanne McCormick and Ian Dalton. Focusing on the unique nature of Catholic Ireland can be problematic, therefore, as often the similarities to other European contexts are missed. There is a, there is significant scope for further research into cultural practices in independent Ireland, especially those that shed more light on the actual experience of, for example, cinema going, reading, dancing, shopping. Further research in these areas might present a picture that is more complicated and multifaceted than is currently accepted. Thank you.